Hello and welcome to Incision UK podcast. In this episode, we will be joined by Dr. Lola Solebo. Dr. Lola Solebo is a NIHR clinician scientist and consultant pediatric ophthalmologist in London, UK. Hello, Dr. Solebo. Thank you very much for joining Incision UK today. Are you happy to introduce yourself for our audience? Yep, sure. Um, so I am Aminat Lola Shalebo. I'm an NIHR clinician scientist, which means that I spend part of my time as a consultant pediatric ophthalmologist and part of my time as a postgraduate epidemiologist. Um, my clinical base is Great Ormond Street and my research base is University College London and that's the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. Within that, I'm part of the population policy and practice department of research and teaching. And within that department, I'm part of the Vision and Eyes group. Great. Thank you so very much. So I guess I would like to maybe focus a bit more on, on the beginning of your journey. So your interest in medicine or whatever it is that you, you started interested in, maybe it was it was science and then you decided that you wanted to do medicine. So yes, I just want to know what sort of attracted you to medicine, to ophthalmology and to research and what was the journey there? I've always been someone who believes in kind of make, it sounds really trite, but making the world a better place. My parents tell me, and I sort of remember that when I was six years old, I was sitting in the car and looking out at the street and there was a street cleaner. And I said, I'd quite like to be a street cleaner because it'd be making the world a better place. And it sounds really trite, but because I was interested in science, but I wanted a job that would push me to actually get out of bed in the morning because I knew I was making a difference. And if you combine those two things together and you're not very imaginative, then that sort of ends up with you entering medicine and of course the thing I'm not saying but the thing that looms large is my dad was a medic so my father was a pediatrician and I'd seen him work really long hours particularly because he was the junior doctor back in the times when junior doctors had a really raw deal and um, he would locum in different parts of the country so he had a really really tough job but he was always so happy with his work because he knew he was making a difference. And that sort of really attracted me, I think. So that's why I went into medicine, the combination of science and making a difference. And then when did you realize that you were interested in ophthalmology? That happened really quite late. So year two of medical school, I realized that what I quite loved was neurology. I'd read some books by Oliver Sacks who um, writes popular science books about um, neurology, in particular, visual perception. And um, I read all his books and I just thought, I'm going to be a neurologist. So I did the neurology prize at medical school. I did a neurology attachment at Queen Square in London, which is where there's a, um, a big hospital um, around neurology and neurosurgery. But then when I graduated as a doctor and did my first house officer year, which is what the foundation year used to be called, um, I was sitting in neurology clinics and I realised that for a lot of it, it was about explaining to patients what their pathology was, giving them a diagnosis, which is definitely a value, but you weren't doing the, the street worker stuff, <laughs> I guess, the street cleaner stuff, you know, actually sort of making them better. So I got a little bit disillusioned with neurology. I think the field of neurology is much more advanced now than it was back when I'm talking, which is the early noughties. 
So I was a bit lost as to what to do. So I did accident as an emergency as SHO jobs, that's FY2 year jobs. And I did that for a year. And during that year, I was exposed to all the different specialities. And the thing I liked about ophthalmology was, well, first of all, um, I was really rubbish when I first started. So in, eye casu so in casualty, I'd avoid all the ophthalmology patients, so everyone who came into the red eye. And I remember once there was at 2 a.m., a man came in with a, a, a sore eye and um, I was using the slit lamp and I was really slow with the slit lamp because I hadn't quite got the knack of it. Um, and his wife said, I'm an optician. Shall I show you how to use that? And the shame of it drove me to, in my spare time, going to ophthalmology clinics. And I realized that this was what I'd been looking for. You had the neurology side, you had lots of different specialities. During trainings, you could see, you know, uh, older patients, you could see children. There was laser, <laughs> there, was, there was rheumatology, there was vascular. So that's that breadth of it skill set and the fact that there was surgery as well which I quite like doing in casualty though sort of stitching people up that's what really attracted me to ophthalmology and then what about pediatric ophthalmology because you decided to so specialize so for a long time I thought I will never do pediatrics because it looks like too much work but everything conspired against me I'm the eldest of four children and they're all much younger than me so I babysat all the way through all the summer holidays my mum owns and owned a nursery for two to five year olds which is why again sometimes work during my holidays so I'm really comfortable around children I always have been and I think that once people realized that I was they'd push me towards doing all the all, all the kiddie stuff and I was you know I was really just quite happy doing that because kids are you know they keep it real <laughs> I really appreciate that about pediatric patients there's this incredible honesty about your interactions with them um and uh when i started doing ophthalmology one of my first jobs was at great ormond street and um lots of rare wonderful things and the learning curve was so steep that i just sort of fell in love with gaining all these skill sets that people were just you know other um trainees at my level would just be amazed that I knew all these things about these rare conditions and amazed that I could examine babies so I sort of fell in love with, uh, with, with that skill set and that ex uh, expertise and that experience. Thank you so much for walking us through this journey with you. So I guess I would like to focus a bit more now on pediatric ophthalmology and and where it sort of sits within the global health landscape and particularly focusing on your research. So can you tell, maybe tell us about one research project that you're, you're currently working on or maybe give us a bit more insight into your research area and how, um, how it fits within the broader global health landscape? So primarily my research looks into the determinants of outcomes for children with eye and vision disorders so one of the biggest pieces of work that we're now seeing come to fruition is our project on congenital cataract so globally childhood cataract is one of the most important causes of avoidable childhood blindness and that's for a combination of reasons. Number one, it's really important that you detect a visually impactful disorder in a child early on in their life course because children spend the first two years of their life learning how to see and in order to learn how to see they need a clear uninterrupted 
stimuli coming into their brains. And if they don't use that critical period building the neuronal pathways that they're going to use for vision, then they really never get a chance to build those pathways. That's something called amblyopia, so irreversible failure to develop vision. So if a child is born with cataracts or develops cataracts early in infancy, it's crucial that you detect that cataract early enough that you can intervene and you can intervene successfully in order that they have a good outcome. And the successful intervention is, is surgery, removing the lens, but that's only half the battle. You've got to return their focusing power in order that you get that good quality visual stimuli to the brain to develop the neuronal capacity that you need in order to see well. So our major study was looking at the management of congenital and infantile cataract in the UK and that's a big issue globally because number one as I said it's really important that you intervene early but number two as I said it's really important that you intervene effectively and by effective um, intervention that means replacing the focusing power and you can either replace that with a contact lens on the eye or with glasses or with an artificial lens inside the eye so it can be really really hard to find the um, eye health professionals in lower and middle income countries who can support the use of contact lenses which are preferential over glasses in getting a good visual outcome. So more and more across the world, people were adapting artificial lens implants to put inside children's eyes on the supposition that that would actually improve to result to better visual outcomes and it would be sort of a, a one-off intervention that you could do and then not have to worry about eye resources later on. But then through our work and, and some also some other international work, we were able to show that actually putting these artificial implants into children's eyes was not associated with better visual outcome for the youngest children who were, of course, most vulnerable. And also it wasn't a one-stop shop because often if you used one of these artificial lenses, you ended up um, having to go back in and do some reoperation for more fibrosis that's linked to inflammation because you've used an artificial body inside a really, really young eye. So that work was done through a national collaborative clinical network. And that's really key for our eye disease. So it's not only just the findings of our research that had global impact, but also the way in which we did the research, showing that for rare eye disease, where you can struggle to get the numbers that can help you to understand really what's going on and what's driving outcomes, the way that you study outcomes in rare eye disease is by doing it as a collaborative network, really making sure that you involve as many other clinicians, many other researchers as you can to get the numbers needed, to get the large population sizes that allows you to do our kind of research. So, I mean, that's really what I love about epidemiology. You can be studying things that are quite common. So for example, some of our work has been looking into lazy eye or, or, or one-sided amblyopia where you need glasses for example because you've got unequal glasses power in each eye and every child in the UK gets their vision tested in the first year of school well they should I mean pandemics put a stop on things for now but they should get their vision tested in the first year of um, school because about one to two to five percent I'm not entirely sure if children have this slightly weaker eye on one side and you've got to help that eye to um, work well so we can be looking at something quite common in epidemiology such as amblyopia but then we can also be looking at something that's quite rare and we're doing it through these collaborative networks that enable us to build up the study population so that sort of collegiate uh, overview to research is really what I love about epidemiology you're not just working in isolation with a with a with a test tube although that kind of research is really important but it's really the basic science epidemiology is the basic science that drives 
clinical medicine and, and clinical practice? I guess you sort of answered it, but I would like to ask you, what do you, what do you think or what are you currently seeing some like really exciting progress in, in your field based on like this, this work that you've done or more globally within pediatric ophthalmology, like some really exciting progress that you've seen throughout your training and, and yeah, so just like, tell us about this. So I think one of the most exciting areas right now is imaging in pediatric ophthalmology because the power of imaging is that you get a much cleaner disease phenotype, which helps you with, for example, phenotype genotype investigations and also getting a very clean and defined phenotype also enables you to do prognostication um, research for example what will happen to my child being one of the questions that parents come in with when they have a child with an eye vision disorder and if you can define with precision what's going on in that child right now then that helps you feed into any algorithm that you've created that helps you predict what will happen to that child later on and of course the other thing about imaging in pediatric ophthalmology is it enables the what i call the democratization of expertise so for some rare disorders they'll be clustered in certain um, areas across the world certain you know the key tertiary um, care centers or t key teaching hospitals and it might be that the people working in the small hospital they only ever see one of these cases of this eye disease in their lifetime how do they communicate what they've got with what they're being seen or with what or the expert have they link into the expertise um hotspots and if you have a picture of the child that you can share a picture of the back of the eye or a, or a video for example of that child's eye movements that you can then share with a hotspot of expertise it can help you manage that child so that's what i really like. and i think that's one of the things we'll see more and more um, and also the amount of data that we're picking up now with some of the really high resolution imaging that we can see um, for adults and particularly for children is going to really help to drive when how we stratify children with eye disease how we manage different groups of children so that's going to be uh, that, that's what's going on right now with a lot of research that we're doing and that's what's going to be leading to we hope some really impactful findings Thank you. And I get to, I guess, to look at the other side of the coin. Can you tell, tell us maybe some of the challenges or really areas of improvement? I guess you answered the area of improvement still, but maybe some of the challenges that you're seeing right now um, to drive progress and, 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 you know, and make sure that all this research that you're doing um, can actually be implemented and, and arrive to the patients and the children that you want to serve. So, I mean, so in my field, the steps are you identify a research question, you collect the data you need, you analyze the data, you interpret the findings, and then you try and translate it into practice. And if we sort of reverse engineering, engineer that, translating into practice, you need eye health professionals in order to implement the evidence-based medicine guidelines or recommendations. And there's a crisis um, with regards to staffing resources for ophthalmologists in lower and middle income countries, but even in the UK. So ophthalmologists, not just in paediatric ophthalmology, but um, all strands of ophthalmology, there's a true crisis for staffing in the UK that's reflected and even magnified in lower and middle income countries. So that is going to be a key step. And that's going to have to be, again, really about training up um, uh, the allied health professionals, optometrists, orthoptists, specialist nurses, 
to help to um, upskill people who can then help to translate any key research findings into practice or even the augmented support that might come if we get big data right with regard to the algorithms that are built that help you manage a particular child um, and help you sort of to um, use your time more effectively when it comes to how you practice medicine and if we take it um, sort of one step back in that pathway of research that I described, how about actually collecting the data that you need? Data in equals data out. And if you have rubbish data coming in, you have rubbish data coming out. And by rubbish data, it's not just the quality of data that you collect at any one center. It's about the harmonization of that data. You know, are those data fields comparable? Have the same coding um, uh, uh, processes been used for, the, for those data? And, you know, we're still, we understand the power of information now. The power of information is understood and felt across the world and across healthcare care settings. But really, in order to harness the power of that data, we all need to be speaking the same language, using the same disease codes, using the same disease definitions. And that's one of the big um, pushes that we've got going on right now. And even when it comes to imaging, you know, have you used the same machines? Do you understand how the different machines might result in slightly different um, uh, um, disease phenotypes because different imaging parameters have been used? So that that, that, those are the two challenges. Number one, getting enough healthcare specialists um, just to implement findings. Number two, um, understanding how we get good quality harmonized data across healthcare settings and across nations. Thank you so much. Um, I would like to ask you, what would you say to someone, to maybe a medical student who is not for who ophthalmology is not on their radar at all what would you tell them to maybe con convince them to to join you so i'd say there's medicine there's surgery there's truth there's beauty so the medicine and the surgery is easy enough but there are not many disorders in which you can directly visualize this level of this level of resolution the pathology that has led to the history that you've taken so history taking is key in most medical specialities but then to be able to look inside the eyes see the vascular pathology see the inflammatory pathology see the structural changes and then plot that back to what the patient's experiencing and then plot that forwards to the steps you need to take to keep that patient safe Ophthalmology is truly exciting. I mean, the surgery um, involves no um, feces, no sputum, and it's microsurgery as well. So once you um, upskill in that, it's it's very it's 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 really poetic surgery. I must say, <laughs> very poetic surgery to working on interocular structures. And with regards to the medicine, it's it's so rich to be able to have high-level discussions with immunologists, with rheumatologists, with infectious disease specialists. That's not something that happens um, across many specialties. With paediatricians as well, understanding the multi-system diseases that occur in your patients, the multimorbidities, how are they impact on the eyes, how the vision impacts on them. Your eyes are the doorway to your souls. They, they very much are. And there's few specialities where you have the privilege of um, supporting a truly vulnerable patient and, and helping them really improve their experience of the world. Oh, thank you. So, okay, maybe just a sidestep. So can you tell, tell, tell us what it is that you mo most enjoy about your work? So 
many eye disorders are chronic so you end up building a wonderful relationship with your patient and by patient in pediatric ophthalmology that means the child and their family around them that's really the unit that comprises your patient what do i really love i still really love being at the sit lamp and looking through the microscope but obviously talking to the patients talking to the families understanding their pathway but really just sitting at the microscope and looking inside an eye it's so beautiful it's so beautiful yeah what is the professional achievement or what is the achievement that you're most proud of and why? I'm always proud of the impact that we have, positive impact that our research has on practice, on the practice and on the population. So our work has gone on to support the screening programs for congenital eye disorders, the screening programs for amblyopia, the childhood screening programs, that sort of positive impact, knowing that children in the UK are a bit more protective because your work has led to further support for the important health interventions for the nation. That's really, I think that's really powerful. That's one of the reasons why I got into research, knowing that it's all very well, it's, it's lovely impacting on your patients one-on-one -on -one in the way that you do in theatre or in clinic. But to be able to impact on the health of a nation and the health of nations, it's, it's such, it's, 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 it's really it's such an honor. What do you think Lola would, your younger self, would say to you if she saw your journey? She'd say, oh, I better actually go into ophthalmology during medical school because then I might be in a better place to get started in ophthalmology a little bit sooner and know the direction I went in. But that's, but I think I think she'd be happy with her. Yeah, no, definitely. The, the job was helping people. And like, I, I, I know I've done that. So yeah, she'd be happy. And what would you say to your younger self? Honestly speaking, I wouldn't say anything. All the things that went, you know, wrong, quote unquote, in my career. So for example, I, I did my, so in the old days, the old days, pre 2008, you had to do part three ophthalmology exam when you were a senior, senior uh, junior registrar or a senior house officer. ST, ST34 was when you did the part three exam. And I did it right at the beginning of what effectively was ST3 and I failed twice. Um, and when I failed twice, it just threw me into this spiral of despair. But when I sat the exam the third time, I mean, I, I inhaled the textbooks. I knew my clinical skills were on point. And that process of having failed twice made me a better clinician. When I applied for my first research fellowship, I failed. Um, but that failure was just an opportunity to really sit down, look at my CV, understand where my gaps were, and make myself a much more powerful candidate for the next round. And that's always what failure has been. So I, I don't think I would change. I don't think I'd change anything. I probably, I don't think I'd change anything. You know, coming back from maternity leave again was really hard. But again, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't change the fact that I had kids. Perhaps the only thing I do, which I think I'll, I'll just recommend to anyone who's in a surgical area who's thinking about doing research, doing my PhD, three years doing my PhD, and I didn't do any surgery doing my PhD. I did a few clinics, but I didn't do any surgery doing my PhD. When I came back to operating after the three-year gap, I had lost, I had a couple of, I had a few complications the first couple of months I was in theatre and I lost all my confidence 
and it was a really hard struggle to get back to feeling like I was a good surgeon again. I mean, part of that hard struggle, I developed some skills that perhaps I wouldn't have developed. I was really good at managing complications when it came to supervising juniors, I guess. So even that had a positive lining. Doing your PhD, make sure that you squeeze in any time to keep your surgical skills up and keep your muscle memory going. That's the only thing I would have done differently. Everything else, all the obstacles or challenges made me made me who I am and I'm sure that rings true for many of the people listening in to this podcast. Thank you very much for joining Incision UK in conversation with Dr. Lola Solebo. See you soon.